0: Hello, this is TechBiter Worldwide for the week of July 22nd, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Digital photography is such a big deal that I thought it's about time to do another program on digital photography. So this week, another in a continuing series of programs on that topic, along with some how-tos that will perhaps chase you off to the website. The topic seemed appropriate because if you have a camera, there's a pretty good chance that it's digital. The editor of Shutterbug magazine in the July issue described this as the year digital took over. By that, he means it's the first year that more prints will be made from digital images than from film. The information is from the Photo Marketing Association. That's a group that has a big interest in how many prints we make. I suspect, though, that the numbers don't mean that more than half of us now use digital cameras. I'm sure that point was reached many years ago. It was indicated by a sharp drop in film sales and, to a great extent, a similar drop in photo paper sales. You see, people who have digital cameras use photography in a way that's far different from the way people use photography if they have a film camera. If you have a film camera and you want to share photographs with someone, short of scanning them in and then emailing them, you have to have prints made and then you send them. So film photographers are always going to have more prints made than digital photographers. Digital photographers, if we want to share a picture, we'll either put it up on a website and direct people to it, or we'll email the photo to someone. Digital photography users, by definition, make far fewer prints. So the fact that more prints are being made this year from digital images than from film images is perhaps even more significant. So instead of making 27 copies of a photo, one for each member of the extended family, you just post an image on an online service, send everybody a link, Those folks who want the image in print form can order the print themselves, or print it themselves at home, and they pay for it. Online sharing is a far better choice in most cases. I mean, after all, how many of your friends really are going to want to keep that stack of vacation pictures you sent along, or the photo of a newborn? They want to see the pictures, of course, but they probably don't want to... Keep the pictures. An online service accomplishes exactly that. They can see the photo of the newborn or your vacation minutes after you upload the image. But it doesn't create clutter in their home. I put together some suggestions, rather presumptively I've called them rules, for sharing photos. First rule, never send the original image. If you're using, for example, a Sony Mavica, that's the old Sony digital camera, the first digital from sony the one that stored pictures on a floppy disk okay go ahead send the original image that the camera recorded it's so small it'll create no more than a small blip in the receiver's email otherwise you really ought to optimize the image for the service you're using whether you're putting it in an email message or on the web optimize is a synonym for shrink your camera probably creates an image that's Oh, maybe 3 megabytes, 4 megabytes, 6 megabytes, maybe 12 megabytes, or even larger in overall size. And that image may be 1,800 to 4,000 pixels wide on the longer side. You want to size the image for the screen. The largest screen these days is around 2,000 pixels wide. So you should never send an image that's wider than that. My general rule is to make an image no larger than about 800 pixels. That's large enough to view on the screen, if someone wants a copy of it, then I'll send them a larger, higher-resolution image. But 800 pixels is plenty for viewing on the screen. When you make that change, you'll automatically reduce the overall size of the file. Rule number two. If you're sending more than one image, think first. It might be better to upload the images to a web-based service and then send just a link. If you're sending just one image, well, maybe you should still think about whether it would be better to upload the image to a website and send a link. Really. There are lots of good online services that will store your photos for free. Even reduced images are large when you send email messages to someone. And that only gets worse if you send lots of images. And think about the person at the receiving end particularly if that person's on a dial-up connection. You send 10 or 15 megabytes to somebody like that, they're going to spend a very long time downloading the file. Rule number three, don't send proprietary format files. If you shoot in raw mode, don't send a raw image. First of all, it's going to be huge. And second, the receiver may not have an application that can open it. Also, don't send Adobe Photoshop images. Don't send Corel PhotoPaint images. The two file formats that are appropriate are JPEG and PING. Rule number four, use online services to store your photos. There's WebShots, Picasa has an online service, there's Flickr, PhotoBucket, Snapfish, one I found recently called SmugMug, I'll tell you about in a little bit, Picture Trail. lots of other services. Use those kinds of services. You can make your images available to the entire world or to just selected individuals who you want to see the images. And you can make it so that people can download and print the images or not. One caution, though, you can never eliminate the ability of someone to download the image. As long as they can see it on the screen, there is a way to get it on their hard disk. Rule number five, TIFF images are not your friend. TIFF stands for Tagged Image File Format. These files retain all the detail of the original image, but the file sizes are enormous. The same goes for BMP, by the way. If you use a zip compression program to shrink a TIFF, the resulting file will be anywhere between 1% and 10% of the original file size. That's one good reason why you should avoid sending TIFFs or uploading them some examples of different file formats and here's where we have to chase you off to the website www.techbiter.com there you'll see images of a BMP file that's the Windows bitmap format it really doesn't stand for bloated Microsoft picture but it might as well BMP images are always gigantic compared to other formats depending on your browser You may or may not be able to see the BMP file on the website. My 800-pixel BMP weighs in at 1.3 megabytes. This is not a file that is friendly for sending by email. Also on the website, a sample of a TIFF. TIFFs are wonderful for printing, not so good for email. They're also a pretty bad choice for the web. No browser that I'm aware of can display a TIFF. There is one on the website, and if you click where it says click for a larger view, where it looks like there ought to be an image, you will get a window opening, but you probably won't be able to see that either. TIFFs do not belong on websites. They don't belong in email. They belong in print publications. My 800-pixel version of the Butterfly, 1.3 megabytes, so also not an email-friendly file. PING. This is an initialism for portable network graphic. This is the format that was supposed to eventually replace both GIFs and JPEGs because it offers the advantages of both with very few disadvantages. So far, it hasn't displaced either GIF or JPEG. The larger version of this one, the 800 pixel wide, is 656 kilobytes. Far better than BMP or TIFF. Still not particularly email friendly. And I have three JPEG examples. JPEG is a lossy format. That means that it throws away some of the image data, the same way that MP3 files discard some of the audio information in a sound file. JPEGs were designed specifically to work with photographic images. JPEG is the default format used by most digital cameras. So I have three examples. I have one with essentially no compression, I have one with medium compression, and I have one with a lot of compression. The one with virtually no compression is hard to tell apart from the TIFF, if you can see the TIFF, or the BMP. However, it is only 363 kilobytes, one fourth the size of the TIFF. JPEG number two, the one with medium compression, the 800 pixel wide file is 101 kilobytes. This is even better for email. With more compression, the size is just one-third of the previous JPEG, and less than one-tenth of the TIFF, yet on screen, the quality is more than acceptable. Medium compression, JPEG, 800 pixel wide. That probably is about the ideal for sending by email. There is a third JPEG, though. The 800-pixel wide version is only 33 kilobytes. This is a low-quality JPEG. If you look at that one, you'll find that it has a lot of artifacting. Artifacting is blobs of colors and kind of a haloing effect. It is distracting, and there's so much compression here that the artifacting is, I think, unacceptable in most cases. It looks like something you'd get from a Sony Mavica. If you need to send a picture to someone who has a low bandwidth connection, this is probably the way to do it, though. You won't slow them down too much. They will get to see the picture. It won't be perfect, but at least they'll get to see it. And then at the bottom of the list, there's GIF. That's the graphics interchange format. It was widely used by CompuServe. Big problem with it is it's limited to 256 colors, and that makes color banding a serious problem. It is a poor choice for photographs because of that banding, and it is doubly a poor choice for photographs because it's relatively large despite the poor image quality. The 800 pixel wide image you'll see on the website is 283 kilobytes. So despite the image quality, or lack thereof, the file size is still nearly 300 kilobytes, not much smaller than the best quality JPEG, which looks far better so how do you adjust an image well if it's a bad idea to send a 12 megabyte raw image and it certainly is a bad idea to do that then you're probably wondering how to send a good file my preference still is to use an online file sharing service but if you must email an image you're going to want a jpeg or maybe a ping The good news is that every recent image editing application can create either kind of file. You certainly don't want to create a GIF image because this is the format limited to 256 colors, and the result will be bad no matter what you do. There are other formats. Just ignore those. Pick either a PNG or a JPEG, preferably a JPEG. I get a lot of questions about resolution. I have this file. It's 300 DPI. Well, resolution is meaningless, unless you're printing the image on paper. If you're creating a color image for high-quality printing, you're going to want an image that's at least 200 DPI resolution. If the printed image would be 3 inches wide by 2 inches tall, the image you would provide in that case would be 600 pixels by 400 pixels. Nothing else matters. If you look at the image's properties, that 600 by 400 image may display as being 72 dpi or 1024 dpi or anything between or above or below either of those numbers. Resolution doesn't matter. What matters is that if you divide the width in pixels of the image by the width of the final print on paper, the result is going to be 200 or greater. 600 pixels wide divided by 3 inches equals 200. If you want to display the image on screen, 100 dpi is adequate. In fact, 100 dpi is immaterial. We don't know what your screen resolution is. Your screen resolution might be 72 dpi, might be 96 dpi, might be 100 dpi, might be something else. The resolution of your screen depends on how many pixels it shows, how many pixels across, in relation to the physical dimensions of the screen. So forget about DPI. I just use 100. It's the right number to use for images that are going to be viewed on the screen, and it makes the math a lot easier. Just assume that the widest screen you're ever going to encounter is 1,024 pixels. There are wider screens. And use a size smaller than that. My preference, 600 to 800 pixels. Typically, I'll use 800 An image that's nominally 1 inch wide at 300 dpi resolution is going to be 300 pixels wide. Now, an image that is nominally 3 inches wide, 3 times as wide, but only at 100 dpi, is going to be 300 pixels wide. All that matters on the screen is pixels. Either of those images, regardless of the resolution, is going to be 300 pixels wide on the screen. All that matters is pixels. I also promised online services, because this is really, I think, the best way to share pictures. There are lots of online services. I thought I'd look at maybe four of them. They come, they go. Some have been around for quite a while. Some are owned by companies large enough to ensure that they're going to be around for a while. And some have a business model that promotes longevity. So we'll look at four of them. Three of the four are free services, or at least have a free component. One is a paid-only service. There is Picasa. It's from Google. The free image organizer program in Google is a pretty handy application. Now, it's not what I use for serious work. I would use Adobe Bridge and Photoshop for serious jobs. But Picasa is an outstanding tool if you just want to flip through your photos or do a quick slideshow. Once you've done that, you have the opportunity to upload a limited number of images to the web for sharing. I show off Picasa with some images I took at dawn one morning a couple of weeks ago. And you'll find a link on the website to my Picasa photos. Shutterfly is another one. Shutterfly is a good choice if you want to order prints. But I think the rest of the presentation leaves a lot to be desired. I'm not providing a link to the actual photos themselves because... The images I used on Shutterfly are of a private nature. They're the graduation of younger daughter Katie a few months ago from Columbus College of Art Design. But you can at least take a look at the screen presentation, the interface that Shutterfly uses. Shutterfly offers you the ability to order decent prints at reasonable prices, but I think the web interface just doesn't quite measure up. And then there's web shots. It's okay for sharing images if you don't mind the fact that whoever goes to the website is going to see a gigantic advertisement that probably moves and certainly distracts viewers from looking at the images. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website to a Webshots presentation from some photos I took recently at the Columbus Zoo. And then there's SmugMug. I discovered SmugMug just a week ago. The first thing I have to point out about SmugMug is that there is no free option at all. None. You pay or you don't play. Well, there is kind of a free option. You get a 15-day free trial. After that, the least expensive plan is $40 a year. SmugMug says it will store all of your images. Actually, it accepts only JPEG, GIF, PNG, and MPG files. If you have raw images or you have TIFFs, you cannot upload them. But... Then that's true of most competing services, too. What you get for your money is an astoundingly great interface, full-screen slideshows, and the ability to store an unlimited number of images. Last week, we visited the Big Bug Show at Inniswood Gardens, and that's what you'll see if you visit my SmugMug website. Again, the link is at techbiter.com. So yes, you're going to spend $40 a year, but the difference is a lot like climbing out of a used Yugo and sitting down in a brand new Lexus. You get to pick the color scheme. You get to pick the theme. The larger image of the selected picture is big enough to see. The quality is excellent. Clicking on it makes it a full-screen image. And if you want to watch a slideshow, as I said, it's a full-screen slideshow, and there are no ads. There are more expensive options... The next one up the ladder allows you to change even the format of the website, and at the highest level, you share in profits from photos you sell. Now, considering the vehicle that I drive to work every day just decided that I needed to spend $2,000 on a rebuilt transmission, and our other car decided last night not to start, stranding younger daughter Katie at a store, I'm really not looking for a place to spend an extra 40 bucks right now but I just can't quit Smug Mug after a 15-day free trial. Really, it is that good. Do you have a mailing list you use to keep in touch with people from your business or club or organization? Services for bulk mailings can range from free services such as Topica to services that are included with web hosting to internet-based services that might cost hundreds or even thousands of dollars a month. Well, I have a specific interest in services like this because TechBiter Worldwide has a weekly newsletter. And I was delighted to find a feature-rich yet inexpensive service that's based in the Netherlands. Your mailing list provider, that's the name of it, your mailing list provider, has become my mailing list provider. You might like it too. Your mailing list provider offers a free service for small groups. The free service does include ads in the messages and it is very limited. Both free and paid services include the ability to have users sign up on your website. You can collect information in addition to email addresses, such as first name, last name, address, or you can create your own fields. You can arrange users into groups, which allows segmenting the subscriber database and sending newsletters to just part of the subscriber list. It will allow users to unsubscribe automatically from each issue of the newsletter. You'll see that at the bottom of the TechBiter Worldwide newsletter every week. You can send both HTML and plain text messages. And you can send a test message if you wish before sending the message to the full list. Copies of all messages are archived. If you want to send your message at a specific time, you can schedule it. And yes, that is how TechBiter Worldwide Messages get those 4 a.m. timestamps. I'm really not up at 4 a.m. on Saturday morning. Most Saturday mornings, anyway. The free version does not allow a user to import an existing list from another service. Users are also limited to sending no more than one newsletter per day, up to a total of 1,000 messages per month. So, if you have 100 subscribers, you could send 10 messages per month. If you have 1,000 subscribers, you could send one message per month for free. You can also embed images in messages or host them on the Your Mailing List Provider website. The second is the better option. You can also host images on your own server. I mentioned the ability to collect information such as first name, last name, and other information. Well, starting just last week, your mailing list provider added the long-awaited ability to use that information in mail merge, and now you can personalize messages, too. Sending a newsletter with your mailing list provider couldn't be easier. All you have to do is decide whether or not you want to send a test message, whether you want the message to be HTML or plain text, when you want to send it, whether there will be attachments, and if you have graphics, whether they're going to be embedded or served by your mailing list provider. Next, you paste in your HTML, or you can use their built-in HTML editor, and create the text. Once you have the HTML, and this is almost like magic, you click a single button, and it creates automatically the text version. That is something that even the higher-priced services generally don't do. If you want a text version with most of the higher-priced services, you have to create it yourself. The next step is previewing the message. That's not the same as sending a test message. This is just a simple on-screen preview. Once you've done that, you've confirmed that it's okay. You check send message, and you're done. If you have selected to send the message immediately, that's what will happen. It will be sent immediately. If you have specified a time for it to be sent, it will be sent at or very near that time. I said it's reasonably priced. Well, free is extremely reasonable. The free, as I said, is limited to a 1,000 messages per month. So, 10 messages to a list with 100 members or 1 to a list with a 1,000. The free service is supported by advertising, so people who subscribe are going to see ads. I don't use the free service. But consider this, $2.50 per month if you send up to 500 messages per month. Five bucks a month for up to 2,500 messages per month. So if you have a list of 500 people, you send five messages per month. That puts you in the 2,500 message per month plan, and you're talking about $5 a month. I am so pleased with your mailing list provider that if I could give them six cats, or nine cats, or two dozen cats, I would. But our highest number of cats is five. Your mailing list provider gets five cats. It is exactly the email list management program I've been looking for. There is a small cost involved, but it's more than worth it to be rid of slow and unreliable free services. In Nerdly News, if you are a non-friend of the Recording Industry Association of America, you will enjoy this story. More than a few people view the Recording Industry Association of America as a bully, and not without certain justification. If you are in that camp, you'll be amused to know that the RIAA has been ordered to pay about $70,000 worth of legal fees. It's the first time a judge has ever ordered the syndicate to pay a defendant's legal costs, even though other defendants have tried to recover fees from the RIAA. This began when the RIAA filed suit against a Deborah Foster in late 2004, claiming that an IP address associated with her computer was sharing files illegally. Foster said she had no knowledge of such activity. And in 2005, a year later, the RIAA added Foster's adult daughter, Amanda, to the suit. Amanda failed to defend herself, and the RIAA won a default judgment. The RIAA continued to pursue that case, but in 2006, a district judge dismissed it. The recording industry has filed thousands of suits. Often they have done that on flimsy evidence against people that it believes to have shared music online illegally. Organizations such as the Electronic Frontier Foundation, American Civil Liberties Union, and Public Citizen claim that the syndicate is simply bullying consumers, many of whom are innocent of wrongdoing by offering, as they put it, a carefully chosen sum that is substantially smaller than the legal fees required to fight the accusations. That's a pretty good definition of extortion. The RIAA says it wants to foster an online environment where the legal marketplace can flourish. Oddly, that's exactly what the RIAA refused to do when some of the early music sharing groups offered to negotiate royalty payments with them. Despite substantial evidence to the contrary, the RIAA says that it attempts to gather facts quickly and identify the appropriate defendant in a handful of cases where a person engaging in illegal activity in the household is not the person responsible for the ISP account. Your definition of quickly and mine may differ from that of the RIAA. For example, this case against Deborah Foster, filed in 2004. They didn't file the follow-up suit against Foster's daughter until 2005, a year later. That doesn't strike me as quickly. Here's a story that wouldn't be a story on Nerdly News, except that it does involve the Internet and it's kind of funny. Whole Foods Market this week admitted that federal regulators and its own board have launched an investigation into online postings by the chief executive, John P. Mackey. Mackey was using a false name, and he's now apologized for his actions. Mackey was writing under the name Raodeb. As Raodeb, he wrote glowingly about Whole Foods, and he attacked rival Wild Oats Markets. He did that on various internet sites. Between 1999 and 2005... Mackey Rayodeb wrote that Wild Oats was overvalued and poorly run. And this year, the company announced that it planned to buy Wild Oats for about $565 million, and federal antitrust regulators won an injunction that's at least temporarily blocked that deal. Rayodeb Mackey said, and I quote, I sincerely apologize to all Whole Foods Market stakeholders for my error in judgment in anonymously participating on online financial message boards. I am very sorry, and I ask our stakeholders to please forgive me. Wow, that sounds like a politician after being caught with his hand in the till, doesn't it? If you plan to use the Internet, use it intelligently. And this week there was a small chink in Google's fiscal armor. It wasn't quite terror on Wall Street, but Google did miss its quarterly earnings guidance for the second quarter. And its shares fell. Poor old Google made only $925 million in profit in the second quarter, and that's $2.93 per share, and that was instead of the expected $3.03 per share. Google does seem to have something in common with oil companies when it comes to making money. Chief Executive Eric Schmidt said the problem is employees. Seems that Google hired a lot of new employees and changed the way that it accounts for bonuses. Schmidt says Google is pleased with the talent the company has And I quote here, brought on board. Didn't know Google was located on a ship. But going forward, and why do CEOs all have the same vocabulary? Going forward, we will watch this area closely. Don't you just get all warm and tingly when CEOs talk like that? The Google Brain Trust says business overall is strong and accelerating. Ah, accelerating, I get it. That's why they have to watch those things closely going forward. You wouldn't want Google to collide with something, especially in the Google boat with everybody on board. Despite all the huffing and puffing from Google, those mean old Wall Streeters traded Google shares down more than 7% from just under $550 a share all the way down to about 500 uh, About all those extra people. Nearly 14,000 people now call Google home during the day. That's up more than 1500 from the first quarter. And the company keeps buying things, too. Email security company Postini for $625 million in cash. And DoubleClick for $3.1 billion in cash. Uh, hey, listen, if you'll excuse me now, I'd like to talk with Google about a business opportunity going forward on board, and I'd like them to watch closely. So, I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of July 22, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website at www.techbiter.com, and you can send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hey, Google, come here.